0: So this is uh, Wednesday, I do believe, and we have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday the last day, and this paradise, uh, you have beautiful surroundings, five-star accommodation, (laughs) excellent food. Where's the suffering? Good, perfect weather. It? It's as good as you'll ever get. But still, it's not enough, is it? In terms of if you, even with the best, we can create misery. We, we don't, we're not asked to do very much. Sit, walk, stand, lie down, breathe, pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to take an examination <laughs> you don't have to worry about passing the course uh, but still uh, the mind, human mind is see how conditioned it is or, it, I've often asked myself why do I why does my mind so easily go negative? What what is you know just because I used to have uh, feel anxiety and worry a lot. I think why why do I why do I do that? What is it that in me that that uh, if if you know seems to incline towards say worrying about the future or feeling of anxiety or or being self-critical. Because that's another thing. I, be, I used to have what I call this inner tyrant. It was a, it was a tyrannical thing in me, a habit uh, that was incessantly, unrelentingly, inexorably critical. <laughs> so no matter what I did, it wasn't good enough. I thought nobody in the world has ever been as nasty and as critical to me as I am, as this inner tyrant. Where does that come from? Where does any of you? Can any of you relate to inner tyrants? I don't think it's just me. <laughs> and it became, you know, just so like like. Um, Even when when everybody said, oh, Ajahn Sumedho, uh, you know, like if I gave a talk and then everybody said, oh, that was a wonderful talk. uh, It really helped. It was so clear and we really appreciate your wonderful wisdom the inner time and say, "Uh, well, you know, you shouldn't have said this and you shouldn't have said that and you didn't. And it would start criticizing. So even in the midst of Peons of, peons of praise and and uh, accolades uh, from the authorities, the tyrant would still go on. So I began to realize this was just this was uh, this, this negativity, this this self-consciousness was a was a habit of the mind, because I certainly wasn't intending it to be like this. Contemplating the kind of society we grow up in, uh, say, here in the United States. It's, a, in some ways, very idealistic society based on democratic ideas uh, of equality and freedom and equal opportunity, liberty, pursuit of happiness, all that. So, so those are the kind of, that's the, the ideal for the society. But the reality of the society is what? It's a very competitive society, isn't it? Uh, when, when you start, you know, when you, when you start going to school, and there's, there's, uh, you're put into very competitive situations. Uh, we are very self-conscious because the, the emphasis is so much on individual attainment. Like how what we look like, and whether we're popular or not, or whether we have a high IQ, or whether uh, where people you know our worth, self worth is very much based on on very individual qualities. This is just my reflection, anyway. So that there's a strong sense of being an individual. Of being an independent individual as having lived in Thailand for a number of years where the society is very different in its attitudes it, the the there seems to be more of a kind of a wider identity your identity more with a family or with a group is strong where say in my experience my identity is very much not so much with family or with uh, anything else, but my sense of my uniqueness, my individuality, seemed to be the, the the main thing. Then I noticed, by the time I was thirty, that this that this kind of individuality, and, and which <coughs> certainly had its good points, I'm not uh, saying that it's all uh, uh, there's something wrong with that, but this emphasis on me being an individual and me being unique. And even in the kind of Christian background that I'm from, there was this sense of a unique soul, that I had a unique soul that was really me, uh, that wasn't like anyone else, and that when I died, if I was, uh, if I was good, I would this soul would go up and live with God and Jesus, and so I'd be this soul, which is a unique soul. It wasn't a kind of like merging into any one universal soul. It was my soul, my unique soul. the sense of being unique and being individual, uh, separate, I began to to notice uh, a kind of loneliness, a sense uh, that somehow something in me had not developed the ability to to kind of relate in an inclusive way with, with a group. Or with an, even another person. Very well, my my identities were too too isolating. Uh, so like even, I was even married at one time. I just couldn't couldn't relate to my wife very well. <laughs> <laughs> so that the, the, uh, this this sense of loneliness began to. Where I think this sense of independence and uniqueness was quite quite a lot of fun during the twenties. Began to wear thin by the thirties, and uh, and uh, a kind of loneliness, a sense of isolation, a lack, an inability to to blend or to fit in or to be part of a larger group, or even just harmonize with some with another person, another human being. So. There's, co- there's competition and, the, and comparing myself with being very idealistic, I I'd compare myself with, with uh, high standards. I had high standards. I expected a lot from people, from parents, from uh, university, from the United States of America, from everything. I expected, you know, fairness, justice, rights, privileges, all the best. Uh, I had very high standards. And these high standards were such that, of course, I could only feel that life was not didn't nothing could reach up to these standards could fulfill these high standards. So this inner tyrant was coming from this, the complaining mind you know, it should be like this, you know, you shouldn't have showed weakness there, you shouldn't have given in to that, you shouldn't have uh done this or said that or you should have and so the tyrant just was was the result of this this way of thinking this kind of conditioning so then the the uh, opportunity to uh, meditate was uh, that's the one hope i had was a, I didn't know how else I could possibly get through life. remember on my thirtieth birthday i was in I was in the peace Corps at a time and uh and I thought I'm thirty now, and i thought I'm thirty years old, but I got the emotions of about a six year old child <laughs> and uh you know i'm I look thirty. And I can, I, you know, I try to act like I'm 30 but inside it's not, there, there, it doesn't, there's nothing very mature about the emotional nature. And I thought, do we, can I spend 30 more years like this? The idea of, of reaching 60, living for 30 more years, with doing, thinking like this, reacting like this was, was really depressing so then i I uh thought well the, what the one thing I do have faith in and I trust is Buddhism that was the the light at the end of the tunnel for me, so it was uh, that that uh kind of possibility that living in Southeast Asia, going going to Thailand and uh, developing through. Through this kind of I had this one thing that I really was interested in, and I wasn't interested in anything else uh at that time at all. just that was the the light a, the kind of dim light at the time, but there was a light at the end of the tunnel, so I was able to to follow that. And so the the kind of conditioning we have it has its good side and its bad side. I'm not, I don't feel that I can complain a lot because I did. I was born in with so many privileges, with good parents in a in a good country. And and you know, when I really look over my life, I I have very little that I you know that I can really say was terrible or un really unfair or or that I've been given a, a, you know, a, a rotten deal in life. I can't really f- feel that way because compared to so many other people on this planet, I've had outstanding kind of opportunities and privileges, options in life, much more than my parents ever had. My parents' options and opportunities were much more restricted than, than, than mine. But still the suffering was there. And if I blame it on parents or America or what, then no. That doesn't do any good to go around just saying it's your fault, does it? But it's learning how to take this, this suffering, this is the, the noble truth, first noble truth, and use that suffering for awakening the mind. So I even feel grateful for it now, for the, for the things that in life that have made me suffer. I have a, a gratitude because it's that kind of thing, that kind of, uh, the disappointments, the resentments, the disillusionments, and, uh, and that, that, that really propelled me into seeking a way out of suffering. So uh, last night I was talking about the First and Second Noble Truths, about the the suffering and the causes of suffering. Somebody asked me today about, because of the kind of detailed explanation of the three aspects of the Four Noble Truths and the Twelve Insights, it does sound incredibly complicated. Uh, the three, was it the four aspects of the three noble truths, or the twelve aspects of the four? And so it can sound, you know, when you talk about these these Theravadan, uh inventory lists, are quite quite daunting at first, but actually they're very useful if you if you. Uh, you know in in the long term i encourage you to memorize a lot of this you know to rote and memorize a lot of the the uh pali teachings because uh, they they're like once you kind of put them into your memory bank then you can kind of you can even just rote and memorize them then i found over the years they kind of come alive for you because you can you don't have to always refer to a book or look it up in the in the scriptures. So in the early stages of monasticism we had to memorize, do a lot of memorization in Pali and, and at first I thought what's this about, you know, just you know, citizen recitations, parrot-like pronouncements what good is this? Because my education was, was uh, we, we didn't, we were never asked to rote-memorize, hardly anything. A, B, C, and so forth. Well, that was about it. Then <laughs> and, uh, and so I didn't realize uh, how easy it is to wrote, memorize until I became a Buddhist monk. So I memorized, I started memorizing the chants, memorized the 227 monastic rules. I, I never thought I would ever do anything like that, but I did that. I could memorize uh, a very good rote memory. And then, in the long term, these things, the, the these Pali teachings, uh, they're kind of there for me. So I can just, you know, like this Seven Factors of Enlightenment and the, and the Five uh, khandhas and the Six Ayatanas and the Paticca Samuppada and the, and the Four Noble Truths, Three Aspects and Twelve Insights and the 37 Bodhya-Pakya-Dhammas and the four right efforts and the, the uh, four parlas and the four faculties. No, the five faculties. <laughs> <laughs> five parlors. Five parlors. <laughs> the ten barometers. Uh, it goes on like that. But these things actually are very you know, I just recommend that, they, that, that rote memorization does have its its benefits, and, and uh, just in terms of reflecting as time goes by they're, they're with you, they'd be uh, rather than in a book which, if they remain in a book merely, oftentimes you never really, uh, really feel you get to really know these, or, or are able to really use them properly So the the three the three um, kinds of desire, for example, even though it sounds complicated, it's it's just the just emphasizing a way of looking at something, and so like, like de- desire itself, just to to get a feeling for what desire is as experience. Is, you're reflecting on it. So in your own experience of <clears throat> of wanting something or not wanting something. are uh, Just simple things. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, great passions of any sort or obsessions, but just little things. Just noting the, what desire is as experience. Not criticizing or judging, but just knowing desire. What is it like as experience? So there's a... This reflective mind, you're kind of contemplating dunha desire, and you can you can feel it. You can feel it kind of this, this pushing, this movement, looking for something. Desire is always looking for something to go into, to be born into. So, so it, it, and, and sometimes just will will settle for anything that's around. And you know, then so you find yourself just you don't know what to do, so you go eat something even though you're not hungry do you any do you ever do that? desire is just you know it's operating, and you just you know, you're looking for something to to be born into, so you go to the fridge and get something to eat and so this the but to just see this desire, there's this movement to. To, toward something it's it it can be completely unfocused and just aim at anything or sometimes it's very definite you know uh, gamadana, sensual pleasure bhavadana desire for becoming, so just contemplate your own kind of ambitions or feelings about wanting to become something, wanting to become a, a success, wanting to become. Uh, a mother or father wanting to become an uh, um, 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 enlightened being or whatever—just that that feeling of becoming, wanting to become something. So you're reflecting on that 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 sense of becoming, and then would done now that sense of not wanting something. I don't want this. I don't. It shouldn't be like this. I hate this we've got to get rid of this either whether it's your own thoughts or feelings or it's external things This note, the Vipa Wadanha wanting to get rid of things this desire to destroy get rid of get away from separate from something so just in daily life even if you're I don't have to do this on even on a meditation retreat, but just notice in daily life what these things when you when you just when you start being I don't like I don't want this. Just kind of comment on what just notice in, in terms of or Dunhard. Desire to get rid of something or separate from something is like this. So you're you're reflecting on the actual feeling of not wanting. You're not judging that by just noticing what it feels like to not want to dislike to want to get rid of or want to become something or want to seeking uh, sense pleasures sense sense distractions so this is a, a way of reflecting in daily life also that so uh, that it's not not all that complicated just beginning to notice this that happens as it's happening so you're actually uh, you know beginning to to awaken to the power the force the feeling the momentum of desire then the the third noble truth is the truth of the cessation uh, dukkha or suffering ceases so Cessation or niroda Duka niroda the third noble truth the cessation of suffering so this is like the the inhalation is like the the uh, arising and exhalation like the cessation um, and this is the pattern in the rising ceasing so niroda is is to be realized there is cessation the state there is a dukkha is something that ceases it's not permanent it's not absolute there's no such thing as absolute permanent misery or suffering suffering is is, is that which arises, and if it arises, it ceases so and and then the insight is this cessation should be realized. So realization is where the second noble truth is letting go of the causes of suffering. But the third noble truth it's the realization of cessation. So notice the, the logic that comes with that. As you let go of the causes of suffering, you're letting go of suffering, you're, getting, you're not getting rid of it, it's not Vipudana, you're letting it be, you're letting suffering be what it is, so you're letting letting it go, letting it be this way. Then suffering ceases and you realize that's the cessation, you, rea- you this ability to notice when the end of suffering, when there's no suffering, is like this. You see, so it's, uh, it's, uh, this is very important to to observe the end of suffering or when there is no more suffering. So that takes uh, this this ability to be patient with something. Usually in our lives when, when we're suffering we, we tend to uh, not notice its cessation or when it ceases, we just distract ourselves. We try to get rid of it. I'm feeling depressed. Oh, I want to t- give me some kind of medicine to take away my depression. Uh, jolly me up. Uh, tell me a joke. Turn on, switch on the telly. Uh, let's have uh, something to eat. Uh, let's go to the disco or whatever. It's you know a way of, of just getting away from the suffering. The whipper would done. Huh? Get get rid of it. But now we're not, we're using suffering, we're examining, we're, we're raising suffering up as a noble truth and using it for mindfulness. So then you're actually realizing suffering ceases. So it's a realization is reality, isn't it? To realize something, is you're aware of the reality of it. So you, you're you aware of the reality of when suffering is no longer present. It's gone. <coughs> Realizing non-suffering. Now how this works as, uh, in practice is, is through uh, mindfulness. Mindfulness allows you to accept suffering and to embrace the suffering, to let it be, to let go of of the the, the causes to, to kind of get rid of the suffering or become happy. You know? So you're, you're letting <coughs> suffering be what it is. And by doing that, then it, it, its natural state is, is, to, is, is it's not permanent. So what arises ceases. And in this cessation, you're realizing, you're noticing. Now there's no suffering, it's gone. Non-suffering is like this. You're realizing the end of suffering. It's not like the end of suffering, you'll never suffer anymore once you have this insight. That would be nice, wouldn't it? That's what I used to hope for. Once I have insight into the third noble truth, there'll be no more suffering for me. It says it says in the books that the end of suffering, it sounds like the total end. But that, it's not, not pointing to that you won't you won't experience suffering anymore, but it is the, the end of suffering. You're, you're, you're realizing the suffering that, that you're experiencing now ends, and you, rea- and you notice its ending, its cessation, its absence. Now, when, when I practice with this, then, then the absence of suffering is a kind of bliss what we call bliss. Because it's a a state of of just where the the, the tensions and the struggle that come from grasping desire, isn't it? Because when when your life is based on grasping desire, you're actually in a state of tension all the time. Because desire is always going off somewhere. You're always kind of running around or you're trying to get rid of it or trying to control or trying to Distract yourself, so so life gets. There's a lot of restlessness and stress and aggravation, endless aggravation, and, and stressfulness in in just struggling with desires. So, when 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 you stop struggling with desires, stop all this this grasping, struggling, fighting, resisting, controlling, manipulating. Running around. When you stop doing that, then you let go of the causes of suffering, and the suffering ceases. And that cessation is like a relief. It's just, and that relief is a is a bliss, a kind of state of bliss. It's not like a high state, like floating up on a cloud, but it's the bliss of relief, of just feeling a sense like you've been carrying. A, a really heavy burden on your back and you're just and you're just so tired and worn by this heavy weight and then you put it down What does that feel like? It's a relief isn't it? So it's nothing fantastic like you know getting blissed out on drugs where you're you you know you're just floating up in the sky somewhere but you're it's just a, a very but a but a lovely feeling of relief and ease. So, in the Third noble Truth, the, the statement there is there is the end of suffering, the cessation of suffering. Suffering. This cessation should be realized, and then cessation has been realized. So the, the 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 statement there is, the prescription to realize it, and the result of using that prescription is, yeah, now I realize, I know there's an end to suffering. It's, it's no longer just theoretical or scriptural teaching, you you know it. It's the direct knowing that I keep encouraging. Well, you can still suffer again, but at least you know there is an end to it. And you 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 have a have a knowledge now, a direct knowledge that encourages you to, to really look at life more directly. It's it's a kind of fearlessness comes from this. Life is very frightening when it's just an endless struggle, isn't it? And when you don't know anything about it, you know, the future is, can be, and especially as you get older, you know, when you're young, when I was young, I was quite optimistic. I remember at 20, the world is mine, you know. There are so many opportunities at age 20, you know, as young and... And the world is my oyster you know i I can do anything. this feeling of everything there's every possibility is open to me and uh, it's really interesting you know to go out and, and 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 just kind of have adventures, romance, excitement go out and explore the planet, romantic relationships. And, and exciting things to be doing. It all looks so wonderful. Age 30, burnt out case. (laughs) (laughs) And then at age 65, tell me, at 30, I said, I don't think I can stand 30 more years. That's 35 years have passed. But I mean, I've changed. I haven't just been stuck with a, with, a, with a program that I wasn't able to change or improve upon. So, I mean, that was the dread at age 30 was what do you do? How do you grow up? How do you mature? How do you develop as a human being? and And then I remember when I was in university, people used to say, oh, "You have to spend at least twenty years under psychoanalysis <laughs> oh God, that's, and that costs a lot of money <laughs> twenty years of going through, a, through psychoanalysis to get your your act together and i can in those days they even those days psychoanalysis was very very expensive so I didn't have much hope of being able to do that I didn't really wasn't interested in it for one thing but what do you do what do you do to to develop as a human being well I, I you know I had my moments with drink and drugs and things like that, but I realized that this wasn't exactly what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, so, so then this opportunity with meditation came up. This was, the, said, the light at the end of the tunnel, the hope, the one hope I had. And so following that, then it did. I had very good result. It was a, the right thing for me to do. Because the past 35 years, there's been, you know, a remarkable change in, and and uh, and, and, uh, and a confidence and a fearlessness in someone who was very un- unconfident and frightened, a very frightened person. So I mean, this just—I'm not boasting. I don't hope I sound like I'm boasting. I'm just trying to point to that. The 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 potential we all share in life that we're not stuck uh, and helpless victims of of uh, bad conditioning, or that we're not just life's victims and we, we maybe we got a a bad deal in the beginning and we're stuck with it for the rest of our lives. To me, I I see whatever uh, you know. the the misfortunes of your life might be. None of these things are obstructions to enlightenment. And anything, you know, no matter what it is, whether it's from early childhood or abuse or or mistreatment, torture or anything you've done, bad things, uh, cruel or criminal acts or whatever, whatever you've done even. None of that is an obstruction to enlightenment. The only obstruction to enlightenment is your refusal to awaken. (laughs) 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 So that's nice, you know, because sometimes one of the great fears of our life is that that maybe you know, we're we're, we're the kind that we'll ne- we can never get enlightened because we, we've got uh, we've had so many unfortunate things happen to us, or we've had such terrible uh, upbringing, or we were we were li- we brought up in a dysfunctional family with we're not loved and appreciated, or that or that we've done uh, horrible and disgusting things, so that there's no hope for us for me because of all this. There's that fear, isn't it? Or that we've been damaged by life, kind of permanently damaged, because we, we've either been corrupted in some way or, or we've done something that we feel might have been like a permanent black mark on our record forever. Those are fears that, we can, that, that many people have. But in terms of dhamma, this is not the way it is. And re- repeat that, that the obstruction to enlightenment is coming from you, is your refusal to awaken. Because every one of you can awaken to life. And, and, uh, and so because right now, here and now, at this, at this moment, this is a very nice setting admittedly, admittedly. but uh, and it, it's it's ideal and so you know it's the perfect situation right now. so there is this sense of and this encouragement to awaken and this awakenness is the ability to just open your mind up wide there's nothing to fear anymore you don't you're in a safe place, you have the three refuges you took. The three refuges and the eight precepts. And this is this is not that. I mean, you don't have if you hadn't taken the eight, three refuges and eight precepts. there's a lot to fear. <laughs> <laughs> the eight, the three refuges and eight precepts. So is a help to kind of encourage this. You know, that sense of of having. Uh, convention to to keep to support and kind of help you and can, and, and guide you and and uh, direct you so this is a good thing to know isn't it that, that uh, there, if you believe there, if you believe that you 're a hopeless case then that 's the attachment you have and, and if you refuse to awaken to this Belief is just merely a, an attachment that you're uh, a, a, a condition of your mind that you're attached to. If you refuse to open to that and see it, then of course you you're actually going to live your life and prove to yourself that you are hopeless. It's not because you really are hopeless; you you refuse to let go of that perception. You see so. The thing is, is this encouragement, this, this act of faith, trust, openness, awareness, and the use of wisdom. It's something that is available to us all. The Buddha established his teaching. He says there's a teaching for, we say, deva which is for angels, but none of us are angels, and for human beings. So I, I'm, I don't know about angels, but I know about human beings. This is a, this is a, manusia is a Pali word for, for human, for human being, for humanity. So The teaching about humanity, about our humanity, about being human, and about life on, in, in this sense realm and these kind of bodies sense bodies, physical bodies, sens- sensitive forms, consciousness, planet Earth, uh, this universal system, this solar system, the sun and the moon, and all the planets and, and all the rest. We, this, is, this is what it's all about. It's for this realm here, these Four Noble Truths. So the realization of cessation, even though that might sound very kind of difficult, it's not. It's not nothing difficult about it. It's a matter of of applying it to 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 use to develop this sati sampatanya, this mindfulness and clear comprehension, this, this attentiveness, attention in the present. Somebody was telling me today about their, their, their experiment with, uh, with disappointment. Just a, an emotion a feeling of disappointment with things in life. And then, then just being able to uh, accept this feeling and, and not try to get rid of it or blame it on somebody or something. And just, and as this accepting of this feeling was possible and and the willingness to feel disappointed and to bear with this feeling, then it ceased, it dropped away. it's like that it's just you know it's it's you're wherever it 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 kind of hangs around it kind of, because the emotions like that are kind of like they linger, they kind of culminate and they they kind of uh, simmer inside and linger and hang, and then and as you accept that feeling, it, it can be uncomfortable, but it's certainly bearable. It's not unbearable. But if you just totally accept it, then that feeling, say the feeling of what you might call feeling of disappointment with life, with yourself, that dis- feeling then. You, can, you, you, you identify it, you accept it, and then it, it ceases. Then you note its absence. Disappointment has ceased. Suffering has ceased. So the cessation of suffering is like this. You know, it's not, it's something real, it's real now. It's not just an idea that you hope to, to uh, experience in the future. It's a reality. It's realized. So it's I've found with um, uh, with all the with, with, with the emotional habits, you know, like like I've talked about this resentment that I used to feel, I used to feel resentful because I. I, because of my position in the community, having to be uh, like ever since I've been, I had only eight years as a Buddhist monk, when I was put into a, a, a leadership position as an abbot of Wat Nanachat in Thailand. I had established a monastery only eight, eight years. Ajahn Chah had 20 years before he established Wat Pa i only got eight years. <laughs> Not fair. <laughs> then, um, then, um, So I, you know, but I was quite willing, I, one side of me was willing to do it because it needed to be done because I'm quite, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite, I want to help and want to serve and help others. So, I, I was willing to, to accept this to do this so it wasn't like uh, Ajahn Chah kind of uh, made me and pushed me into it but there was certainly you know uh, uh, he certainly wanted you know let me know that this would be a good thing to be doing so I did it put myself in in, in this position after eight years and then ever since I've been in this position like this right now everybody looking at me (laughs) You know what it's like to be always looked at, <laughs> and and then then uh, going to England, and and there, you know, just being a, a focus. Being in in Thailand, at least, a Buddhist monk is a is a respected sight. You know, you you go around, and people people pay respect to me, and they and the Thais are very respectful to Western. Or foreign Buddhist monks. So, it's very nice in Thailand. You go around, people look at you with a devotion and they pay respect and they treat you very well. Then you go, when you leave Thailand, that's not what happens. You, know? you go into Victoria Station in London and you get called skinhead. <laughs> people give you, you know, obsc- make obscene gestures sometimes and, and then you uh, you go, if you're lucky they, you, they'll, they'll just call you Hare Krishna <laughs> I got to like that one, Hare Krishna because <coughs> it's certainly a lot better than some of the other things you get called then, then, and then you're, you're kind of like a, a freak yeah, an anachronism in the society you know wherever you go you, you stand out, you look funny I said, where do you wear, why do you wear those bed sheets and <laughs> people you know really look at, at you and in terms of when you'd like to to fade into the crowd, you'd like to be just somebody in a crowd that nobody noticed. and then you shaven head and ochre robes and and uh, so my life has been uh, in a position where I am an outstanding. Uh, individual being, <laughs> and uh, this is, you know, I felt a lot of resentment because of it. Then in England, uh, have, taking on these, the duties of an abbot and teacher and so forth, it had its good side and pleasant side, but also a part of me really resented it, because it it seemed like there was no way out of it how could i how could I get out of this position it was I was stuck and uh, and and it brought up this feeling of resentment because of my idealism and that i I didn't really contact this feeling for a long time but it be, it would show up in various ways I would handle situations kind of Cynical asides, or just slight complaints, even, or or just the feeling, you know, just having feeling fed up with a lot of things, or being terribly disappointed because people, you know, people you felt you could depend on let you down, or things like this. So, so the uh, the this resentment was underlying a lot of. Uh, of uh, my life in England until I really began to identify the, the emotion. So, and even though what surprised me was how obvious resentment is, and it's that I didn't detect it sooner. <laughs> but uh, well, the good thing is, I did eventually see it, you know, it was right in my face a good part of my life. I didn't really, really, uh, really see it very clearly until only a few years ago. And then this, this resentment, once I really saw this and experienced it, and really accepted this feeling of resentment and, and uh, felt it, willing to, to feel resentful rather than just saying, Oh, I shouldn't be resentful, I should, you know, there was an ideal side that I should be grateful for being a monk and having a good teacher and being respected and, you know, there's one side that wants to think about it in a positive way and, and be content and grateful. But that wasn't really, that was, that's very good training also, but underlying that was an emotion I hadn't really totally seen or accepted but once I had seen and accepted this feeling, then like like disappointment it it dropped. I actually remember when it just the feeling of resentment it disappeared in my mind, leaving this state of relief and bliss. And I haven't felt resentful since. That motion is no is you know so It's a really, it's a relief not to, and because I don't feel, I don't have that emotion, that emotion rather is not a problem, not that I never resent anything, but I know what it is and it's no longer something unacknowledged, so it's no longer a real problem for me. So it it helps me to appreciate the good things of my life. I don't have to leave the, the monastic life or go away or do anything in order to, to uh, fulfill myself because I, I feel a confidence in just working with life as I'm living it now. I have a... I, I, I know how to practice with the flow of life. I feel confident in my practice with, the, with life as I have to experience it, whether it's here, right now, here at Spirit Rock, or going to a Bayagiri, going back to England. It's all part of the flow of life. It's not practice is here or I want to, I'm anxious to finish off this retreat so I can get a few days of of real practice up in a Bayagiri or when I go to England uh, this uh, uh, Vasa season this year, I hope to really get some time in high, you know, really quality time into practice and sitting so I can that those kind of thoughts just don't don't mean anything to me anymore. It's not the way I I see or experience life because the, the, it's the flow of experience and the and the the relief that comes from from that kind of practice that I value and I respect. So it also has a fearless quality to it, so like before I felt threatened by so many things and, and then that resistant and, and then because of that a controlling quality I d- applied to life, you know, trying to control things and, 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 and you know, worry if things, got, if things started looking like they're getting out of control or changing. And when the monks started disrobing and then the, a lot of the nuns disrobed and the anxiety and the you know the whole kind of way life changes and and you start feeling anxious or something's going wrong or it's falling apart. Now I think falling apart is dhamma. You know, no make no demands whether everybody stays in the monastery and practices or they all leave it, it's all dumber rather than 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 me trying to control it and and when it starts falling apart, trying to prop it up and getting all anxious and worried or because it's changing in a way that I didn't expect or it seems to be getting out of control and getting all upset now I realize you don't have to do that with life you don't have to run around trying to hold on and when it starts falling apart trying to hold it together because the thing that you trust is this awareness this unshakable kind of awareness that doesn't fall apart when everything else falls apart doesn't get out of control when everything else is out of control completely so it's, it's because that is the true nature of mind it's our true nature, then that is our refuge and that's what, what we encourage in this practice to, to begin to awaken to and realize and respect in yourself because it's certainly within everyone's potential to, for this kind of realization. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening. We had uh somebody was telling me sister Sundra was telling me the this kind of tragic news about uh today in Colorado there's a kind of what a mass slaughter twenty five